0: Have you ever wondered what it's like to sit in on a magazine editorial meeting? Well, this is your chance. You're listening to Salt Lake Speaks, a monthly podcast where our editors, writers, and staff dig deeper into stories, chat with newsmakers, and talk amongst ourselves about arts, culture, food, music, politics, or whatever else might strike our fancy. After all, we are Utah's biggest fans.
1: Welcome to Salt Lake Speaks, the podcast of Salt Lake Magazine. I'm managing editor Glenn Warchell, and with me today is Native American queer activist, Deleslin George Warren, who goes by Rue to his friends, who's part of a new ex- exhibition at the UMFA titled Go West, Art of the American Frontier from the Buffalo Bill Center of the West. Uh, Deleslin is offering a variety of eye opening works at the UMFA, including his Indigenous Core of Discovery. Don't go West expedition, which turns most of the myths that most Western Americans and Utahans hold about Native Americans and the settlement of the West on their heads. Um, Rue, I want to start with uh, Utah, of course. You're from the Catawba tribe in South Carolina, Mm -hmm. um, but you're in a Western uh, milieu now and um, a very Mormon state. The Mormon culture has a particularly sanitized history of its interaction with the tribes. Um, There was the Mountain Meadow Massacre, which for many decades was blamed on the Native American tribes rather than the Mormon militia that was with them. We've had our uh, massacres and other issues. Um, I understand your tribe is heavily Mormon.
0: That's true. Um, since the late 1800s, either the 1870s or 1880s, um, a vast majority of Catawbas have been Mormon. So we've had a lot of interactions with the Mormon church. And our relationship with the Mormon church has been very different, I think, than a lot of the tribes who were here in Utah and other parts of the West who are interacting with the church, particularly during the mid-1800s up through the early 1900s.
1: Well, is um, you were mentioning to me before the broadcast that uh, that your tribe and many Indian tribes have been converted to various forms of Christianity. Is that sort of a cultural expungement for the tribes?
0: Yeah, it's really complicated. So um, my tribe has been dealing with settlers, uh, well, with Europeans since probably about 1540, which is a pretty different situation than a lot of the tribes out west who were just interacting with Um, settlers starting in the 1700s and 1800s right? And so we um, very quickly aligned ourselves with Charlestown and later Charleston and the British colonies as like trading partners and so part of that was um, that we had lots of missionaries coming to us very very early on in our history. Um, The biggest mission movement was in the early 1800s with the Methodists. And you know I, I'm not Mormon and I definitely don't speak for my tribe or any Mormon members of my tribe or anything like that. Um, but I think that the reason why Mormonism was so appealing to, to members of the tribe is one, in their, um, in their storytelling, in their books, they also include stories about Native Americans, which is the first time that any, any missionary had come to our people and said, hey, we actually have stories about you and like we have a place in our worldview for you. I also think that race came into it in that this is after the Civil War in South Carolina. Um, Jim Crow is starting to go into full effect in which there's really a biracial system. You're either white and you have rights or you aren't and you don't. And so for my tribe, the thought was like, well, how do we gain rights? And within Mormon belief at that time, there was, and I don't know how codified it was within the church, but there was this thought that the harder you believe, the wider you become, literally. And so this was, um, you know, this offered an opportunity for Catawbas to actually gain some rights, or at least they thought that that's what would happen. So um, those are kind of my thoughts on why I think Mormonism became so popular with Catawbas. Now, that being said, um, I think you find over and over again uh, in interactions between tribes and churches, that they find ways of maintaining tradition within these religious traditions. So I think when you come to Catawba Indian Nation, um, most of us are Mormon and the rest are kind of Southern Baptists or some other denomination of Christianity, at least self-identified. And I think um, when you talk to them about their faith systems and their beliefs, it's often a little bit different than the than the codified church uh, philosophies, like there are there are things where we talk about ancestors. There's things where we talk about um, animism, um, which I don't think very well. Very few churches believe in animism. So, so there's ways that we have found of continuing our culture while also adapting to to these situations.
1: What exactly are you going to do at the UMFA in connection with the exhibit?
0: Yeah. So my big project uh, while I'm here is called the core, the Indigenous Core of Discoveries. Uh, Don't Go West Expedition. Uh, The Indigenous Corps of Discovery was a project that I started last year to coincide with the election, where I gave tours of the Smithsonian's Presidential Portrait Gallery telling Indigenous history behind these presidents. So this expedition, the Don't Go West Expedition, is um, my attempt in coordination with UMFA to give some context, some uh, about about this art, this really glorified understanding of the West um, that most people have, and tell the stories of what was happening, the massacres, the way that Indi- indigenous people were finding ways of surviving and adapting to these situations, um, and also relating it to my life, because like you said, <laughs> I'm Catawba, I'm from South Carolina, I I am very aware that this is not my land. <laughs> when I got out of the airplane and saw these giant mountains, um, and how cold it was, I was like, this is not where I'm from. Um, so you know, at the same time, I also want to emphasize in these tours that I am not I don't speak for all indigenous people. I don't even speak for my tribe. I'm here to just tell some of my stories, my understandings of what's happening, and encourage people to actually go out and start listening to indigenous people more. One of the big issues that I have with representations of indigenous people by non-indigenous people is that it becomes really difficult for us to talk about our very real political um, problems and goals when all people know about us are these really racialized uh, representations of us.
1: Well, do you think that your works here, all of them together, considering that they're going to explode a lot of mythology for a lot of people, do you think they'll be upsetting to Utahns or Americans in general? Excuse me, non-Native Americans in general.
0: So when I gave my tours at the, the Smithsonian, Um, I had this idea that maybe it was for indigenous people when I started, and I very quickly realized that most people coming, A, weren't indigenous, and so when I was telling these stories, I actually had to, I wasn't able to go in as in-depth as I wanted to, and I also realized that like indigenous people know these stories, like we know the stories of our dispossession and um, of how we have been treated by the government and by settlers, and so uh, I was talking to someone in D.C., and they said, well, you know, we kind of figured it wasn't really for us. And so, uh, you know, I realized that this really is about confronting beliefs that non-Native people have. And so that being said, I did have some people um, who would push back against me during the tours or who would get upset about it. Um, but the big, my big approach to it is to treat it like any other tour. And as like most people have gone on some sort of tour in their life, And, you know, tour guides are very pleasant, um, smile a lot, very uh, welcoming. And so my goal is to do all those things while also telling um, what I consider a really, really dark history. And so I would end my tours at the Smithsonian, you know, with a smile and asking if there's any questions and people are just, you know, like, a gas, like their faces a drop, because these are stories that they literally have never been told before.
1: So there is a subversive nature to your work.
0: Oh, yes, <laughs> definitely. That is, that is definitely a theme that runs through all my work, not just this project.
1: <laughs> You've come to Utah at a very controversial time because of the Bears Ears National Monument controversy and also the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument controversy, the President has cut them back or wants to cut them back significantly and those monuments, both of them, were put in place in a great part to protect uh, indigenous uh, art, indigenous settlements and things that are there. Uh, This is indigenous people that were precursors to the people we call Native Americans now, Anasazi, sometimes referred to as the old ones but so you're here how are you going to incorporate this controversy into any of your work
0: yeah so one one thing that comes up a lot when talking about the west is the creation of national parks and so um, national parks are interesting for indigenous people because while you know lincoln and other um, politicians and activists in on the East Coast we were talking about how they needed to save these parks for everyone, it became very clear that everyone did not include indigenous people. And that's, um, we know that because, for example, when Yosemite was established, when Yellowstone was established, there were very quickly campaigns to remove all of the indigenous people from there. And they were only allowed to come back when they um, were performing for guests. And so they didn't actually get to perform their own culture, they had to perform what people expected, which was Plains culture. Um, that being said, Indigenous people are very adaptable and they find ways of um, protecting their lands and protecting their cultures, even, um, even if it isn't how they originally envisioned that happening. And so I think Bears Ears um, was just a really, really inspiring example of how, peop- how Indigenous people said, well, you know, we have this 1903 Antiquities Act where we can get this put into a national monument. Um, It's clear that they're not going to give this land back to us at least anytime soon, but we need to protect this because it is sacred and because it's significant. And not only that, they decided that it wasn't just going to be one tribe that pushed this, but it was going to be five tribes. And this sort of coalition, um, we've been working together in all sorts of ways forever, but this very specific kind of coalition has never been uh, tried before, and so that's really inspiring to me. And then when it was put into national monument status, the fact that it was Um, joint management between the tribes and uh, the Bureau of Land Management, I think. Um, That was also really amazing because I think that that actually um, offers a way forward for us with all of these um, conflicted land uh, claims. It's like how do we figure out how we can all work together to protect these lands. Now with the, um, you know, it hasn't happened yet. Um, but it's been made clear by President Trump that his intention is to drastically reduce the National Monument um, area. And it reminds me of, and I might get the names wrong on this, um, but this chief who visited Monroe, um, and he, he had made an agreement with Madison about their land, and uh, Monroe goes back on this agreement. And so the chief goes to Monroe and says, it was our understanding that when one of your presidents, one of your leaders made an agreement with us, that presidents afterwards would have to follow that agreement. But now the tree of friendship has um, has died, has been killed by you. And so I think that this is a theme that comes up over and over again, is that promises, which are sacred, getting broken over and over and over again. And I think that that's also a big part of um, the Indian Wars, as they were called. (laughs) There are air quotes being (laughs) used right now. Um, But the Indian Wars that happened throughout the 1800s with um, Plains Indians, the thought was, well, why don't they just make an agreement with the United States? And the fact is they did over and over again. But after having an agreement broken so many times, it's difficult to trust the person (laughs) that you're making agreements with.
1: Well, you know, of of all of your work, I I think this part about the national parks could have special controversy, because we just went through the cycle of Ken Burns' National Parks, America's best idea. And now, you know, you're kind of turning that over and saying, and Utah's got five national parks, which power a lot of our ecotourism, and you're saying these things weren't a great idea for everyone. And in fact, they were just another way to take Native Native Americans' land away.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it is really impossible to understand anything that's happening in the West, which I also, during my tour, talk about the idea of like, where is the West? Um, because during George Washington's time, my, our land, Catawba land, was actually thought of as the Western frontier of the United States. It was also referred to in the same way that people refer to um, a lot of the land in the West is like an Eden, a place of um, limitless bounty, right? So yeah, I, um, I think you can't understand the West unless you understand that it's about taking land, right? And so in that way, you see these national parks as another process by which land is taken. And something else that, um, that goes into this is this really deep-seated idea in Western culture that nature and civilization are separated and the idea that if you that when they saw, for example, Yosemite or Yellowstone, and they were just amazed not just at the natural formations, but at the the amount of plant life and animal life um, that was there, they thought it just was made that way by God, or just became that way without human intervention. Which is where the idea of preservation comes from: we have to preserve this from humans. When in reality, these things were made through relationships of humans, animals, and plants, and the landscape. These these were cultivated landscapes. They had spent thousands of years there planting oak trees and other mass trees, fruit trees, um, cultivating prairies where um, large game animals could actually feed. And you actually see that. Um, John Muir, when he first goes, uh, it's either Yellowstone or Yosemite, I have to check my notes, um, but when he first visits, he's just amazed. He has this really flowery language. He talks about these giant animals, the beautiful rock formations, the plants. And when he returns about 30 years later, he's aghast at, one, the kind of tourism that's being pushed in this park, um, two, the logging that's happening just north of this park, and then three, the complete lack of large game animals. He's wondering, like, where have they gone? And he also notes that there are now just lots of shrubs where there used to be um, open plains. And my thought is, he never made this connection, but I think it's pretty apparent, is that by removing indigenous people and their land management practices, he made those landscapes less habitable by by the animals that Muir was hoping to keep there.
1: One of the questions I have to end with is, uh, it seems like a lot of repressed groups the LGBTQ community, and this year we're seeing women mm-hmm. finally stepping up, and um, and a, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of things that just weren't right are being corrected. Yet the indigenous people of the continent have been put upon for hundreds of years, and and except I guess in the '80s there was a a bit of a blip, but. When is their year of the indigenous North American person coming?
0: That's a great question. I think um, there's a couple of things on that that I, that I want to talk about. Um, you know, last year, I think, was a huge year for indigenous people. We saw with um, Standing Rock and the Oceti Sakowin Camp um, and this mass mobilization of an incredibly nonviolent movement. And what made it so popular was... uh, What made it so um, successful in one sense was this... collaboration with people from across faiths I remember um, churches in the southeast which are con- generally considered very conservative actually praying for um, the Standing Rock Sioux because the elders sent out a call to religious groups to pray for them and that was the simplicity of their call is that we just want to be on our land and pray um, so I think the last year was really amazing for a lot of people and it gave particularly a lot of young indigenous people hope people who were born after um, the 70s and 80s the 60s 70s and 80s those like kind of watershed moments. Um, With, you know, the kind of the decade of LGBT movements and this year of, uh, you know, Me Too and and women's rights, I think also something to keep in mind is that there are LGBT Native American people and there are obviously Native women too. Um, And the problem is often that we are kept out of those movements or um, either by neglect or by... um, actively trying to keep us out. Because one thing to consider is that a lot of our claims, our legal claims and our political claims as Native Americans is very threatening to a lot of people because it involves land reclamation. And so that is a really disconcerting thing regardless of where you are in the United States. It's still kind of scary to think that the land won't be owned by the United States. So obviously there are, there are queer Native American people. And I think you know, as a, as a queer person, um, as a two-spirit person, what I find really annoying is a lot of how the LGBT movement frames itself in history as starting in the 60s with maybe some inklings prior to that. But on these lands, you know, homophobia wasn't the standard. I mean, there were definitely tribes that, did, that denigrated some of their queer members, but also, a lot of tribes that didn't. So, homophobia was not at all the standard prior to colonization. And so, it's it's a type of erasure when people say, "Oh, the LGBT movement started in the '60s." Well, no, it's been here for since the world began. Is something that uh, we say a lot. And so, you know, I moved to DC after I graduated from college, which is a huge um, LGBT town, like a very large population, and people celebrating, having good times, but at the same time, completely ignoring crises that are happening in Native communities, like across Indian country, um, Native youth are committing suicides in exponential number, in just huge, huge numbers. And uh, we don't have any statistics on this, but we know from other statistics that very likely a large number of those are LGBT youth. And so whenever I'd go to these big events in DC with the HRC or other large um, LGBTQ organizations, I would go up to whoever was in charge immediately after their presentation and say, what are you doing for queer youth on reservations? And they never really had a good answer because they, they don't think about us, they think we don't exist. And so you know, I, one thing I'd encourage people to, to always consider is, when talking about LGBT issues, think about LGBT Native Americans, because we are here and we are queer. And um, also think about, uh, when talking about women's issues, think about Native American women who have the highest incidence of sexual assault rates in the United States. Um, so any Me Too movement that doesn't talk about indigenous women, um, I think is, prob- is, is a problem.
1: So it sounds like uh, on top of all the other troubles that these groups have, you put the layer of being indigenous yeah. and invisible mm-hmm. on top of them. Yeah. Well, I'd like to wrap it up but with a question uh, that comes to me very strongly, and that is, what can non-Indigenous Americans do to help the tribes? Yep. I mean, um, often non-Indigenous people feel that they're outside, they'd like to help, but this is a different culture. What can, what can they do if they're not Indigenous?
0: Yeah, I think there's, that's an excellent question and a couple of things about that. Um, first is listen to indigenous peoples. Um, something I'd love for everyone who's listening to think about is when was the last time you read a book or saw a movie or experienced some art that was made by an indigenous person? Not necessarily about indigenous people, but was made by an indigenous person. And then if it, if it wasn't recently or ever, then go out and find some indigenous people to listen to because I think that that's, number one, a really eye-opening experience. And then number two is um, there are lots of ways to be allies to indigenous peoples. Um, a lot of people will say like, tribes are sometimes unfriendly to people who are trying to help and that's because we have this long history of people saying we're here to help we're here to help and in reality just stealing our children and taking them to abusive boarding schools or um, getting rid of our agricultural practices or whatever so we have we definitely have some suspicion of people who are here to help and so the best way is just to listen and if some if a tribe says this is what we want to do for example the bear's ear um, coalition if a tribe says this is what we want to do then hop on and help however you can Um, but but listen 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 and then from there figure out what you can do well
1: thank you uh this has been very illuminating and i'm hoping a lot of people come and see this uh stripping of mythology from from the western culture that we have developed Uh, and Utah of course is a center with so many John Ford movies about westerns and things including The Searchers which deals with racism uh, towards Native Americans. Um, Thanks for joining us at Salt Lake Speaks. This is Glenn Warchill today with Rue, who is a Native American queer artist who will be uh, exhibiting performance art, and other things at the UMFA for the next few weeks. Please listen to our other podcast at saltlakemagazine.com podcast.